believe it was a frog who wrote, explaining a joke is like dissecting the American writer Elwin Brooks Wright. You understand it better, but Elwin Brooks White dies in the process, ideally before completing Stuart Little. I may have got this the wrong way round. Well, I think you actually have got that the wrong way round. I think the actual quotation you're looking for is this. Explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it better, but the frog dies in the process. And the quotation is by E.B. White, who's famous, of course, for saying that thing, and for writing Stuart Little, and for writing Charlotte's Web, and possibly most importantly, for co-authoring and contributing to William Strunk's classic Elements of Style, which everyone should read and learn. In fact, they should, they should buy it now from a ethical bookseller. That's right. I think he, he added in a chapter or something, didn't he? It was, it was mainly Strunk with a, a soupçon of white in that book. Yeah, in fact, that comic or indeed satirical inversion of the well-known narrator of whimsical stories about gifted and talented spiders was originally made by none other than Stuart Lee in a 2016 column in The Observer called My Paul Nuttall's Routine Has Floated Back Up the U-Bend. And in that column, he kind of reflects on the short-term fleeting nature of comedy and satire in a rapidly changing political landscape, doesn't he? Yeah, and you selected it because today's episode, which explores the relationship between satire and social justice, which we're going to define broadly, includes mm-hmm. an interview with Dr. Sharon Lockyer, a reader in sociology and communication at Brunel University, where she's also the founding director of the Centre for Comedy Studies Research, the first and only international research centre devoted to the academic study of comedy, although there is, of course, also now a research unit for the study of satire. The Research Centre for, for Comedy is, is what Sharon founded. But what Sharon has achieved at Brunel is an aspiration. It's extraordinary. Yeah. And we'll talk more about Sharon's work later. But it, it, yeah, it's quite, quite wonderful. So the interview with Sharon that we'll be sharing later in the episode was recorded in January and is now ready for release. And regular listeners will realise that we've had to postpone this for various reasons, mostly, you know, the collapse of the world. This was recorded in January, and obviously... We didn't know what was coming, did we? No. History is a different country, but already January is like a different world. Um, We did things differently there. So obviously in that interview, we're not going to refer to anything that hadn't happened yet, which includes the pandemic, the lockdown, the handling of the lockdown. Uh, We talk about Boris Johnson in that interview, but that's before everything he's done since January. Wait, just a satirical moment, though. Who even are we, and what is this podcast? That's a very good question. I'm Gammon, you're Karen. I'm Karen. People listening to our ongoing podcast, Karen and Gammon Talk About Offence. It should be Karen and Gammon Talk About Salmon, shouldn't it? It should be Karen and Gammon Talk About I'd salmon. listen to that. Where do we draw the line upon which we post our fence? Yeah, we draw the line and then we post the fence and then we paint the fence and the fence is on the line. That's very good, but we're not really called Gammon and Karen, are we, Karen? Or not, not in our own minds, anyway. Well, what we're actually called is... I'm Joe War, senior lecturer in 19th century literature. Stop it! Well, who are you? I'm Dr. Joe War, senior lecturer in 19th century literature. Who are you? I'm Adam James Smith, a senior lecturer in. Dr. Adam James Smith. I'm Dr. Adam James Smith, a senior lecturer in 18th century literature, and together we put, we host this podcast, which is actually called Smith and War Talk About Satire. And what do we do in the podcast? Talk about satire, evidently. Let's do exactly that. Let's do that. Before we get on to Sharon, shall we? have a little lockdown roundup. Have we not rounded it up yet? No, 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 There's more, more things have happened, haven't they? Okay. Well, it should be Adam and Joe's return to something approaching normality roundup by now, shouldn't it? But um, it should yeah, should, we could ever think about satire and, and pandemics and stuff, couldn't we? So this is the big, big news in satire this very morning, isn't it? We're recording this on what, Wednesday, 22nd of July. That's right. And who's been cancelled or dropped today? 
Well, it's very, we're very early in the 24-hour news cycle, but Steve Bell mm. has, he's con he said the cartoonist Steve Bell, we discussed him at great length in episode 1.4 of season one, didn't we, Satire on the Visual Image? Yeah. And we talked about his ca famous caricature of David Cameron with a condom for a head. Yeah, I mean, a, sta a satirical staple in the national cultural consciousness, yeah. I'd say, his contract has ended at The Guardian, and this has been reported in different ways. Yeah, but of course this is in the context of a lot of people's contracts at The Guardian being um, ended, isn't it? Because The Guardian are making big cuts, and all of those times when I, when I read Guardian articles and clicked away from that yellow bit at the bottom that says, since you're here, we have a favour to ask, or whatever it is, yeah. I must presumably accept some of the blame here, because um, they're making major cuts, getting rid of the weekend section, the review section. I bet they keep the fucking sport. Yeah, they will. I mean, that's the big news story, isn't it? That The Guardian is shedding all these jobs that you know, the media and journalism may never yeah. recover from. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, in terms of what's been deemed expendable. Satire. So is that, is that just like a nice little peripheral extra? Or, do you think, or maybe they'll just get a cheaper satirist uh, and all the while keep the fucking sport? because yeah. apparently we have to have sport through the pandemic. The discussion about him being removed from the staff, however, has also been bound up with some of his more controversial cartoons, hasn't it? Bell has been very clear that the reason he isn't going to be working there is because of the cuts and not because of some of the things he's drawn. Inevitably, people are commenting on and remembering some of those things too. That's right. So that's what I was going to say. So the, the main... I think the big story is the impact that the pandemic is having on journalism. And as you say, the question of what is deemed expendable. Um, but a lot of the coverage this morning has buried the lead, I think, and is equating this news, which, as you say, happens in the context of lots of people losing their job, but they're equating it with the other big story of our moment, which is cancel culture. So you've got some people saying, you know, Steve Bell cancelled from The Guardian for perceived racist cartoons, or, you know, The Guardian cancels Steve Bell. And then, as we'll discuss later, you've always got that contingent of people who take the political correctness line. It comes from the comes from a further right position, doesn't it? And they're like, well, this is just another example where you can't say anything anymore. Even some of the articles that do discuss this in the context of lots of people's contracts endings have also cited the recent cartoon he did of Pretty Patel as a bull, yeah. um, which he gave an explanation for, didn't he? He said it was just because she's like a bull in a china shop, but it invited criticism for being racist and misogynistic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just, there, are, there are ways to avoid having to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems like it's cut and dry. His contract has ended because they've decided, the Guardian has decided they don't need him as a satirist and they're looking to cut jobs. Within the current context, that has been equated to various instances where his work has been deemed offensive, whether that's what he intended or not. Either way, Steve Bell is no longer a cartoonist for The Guardian. But I mean, if you are an artist, like you work on fine art and you're interested in becoming a caricaturist, like this is not great news, is it? Not good times for you, is it? No. No. So a story that really took up a lot of oxygen in the later lockdown period, really in the early days of the Black Lives Matter protests, was that of UK TV taking down episodes of Faulty Towers, particularly one episode, in, well, especially one episode, that was deemed to have offensive content, which prompted all sorts of predictable responses. So... The episode in question was the Don't Talk About the War episode. The scene that was attracting the most attention was the one where the Major repeatedly uses the N-word, although as we could perhaps... And a variety of other slurs as well, doesn't he? Yes, Trying to um, establish a sort of taxonomical system of racist terms. Which is a scene, which that scene in particular is one that John Cleese historically has defended because he, and he says, 
the, the butt of the joke is the major. Like you're laughing at him. You're not laughing because you agree with him. And it's rendering how it's just showing how absurd and outdated and upsetting those. Yeah. What, what less discussion about was the other scenes in that episode. Yeah, I mean, that scene, it's a bit like some of the moments in Alan Partridge, isn't it? Where you know that Basil Fawlty and Alan Partridge are not models of kind of tolerance or inclusivity or left-wing politics or anything else. But yeah. Basil Fawlty is horrified. Yeah. Um, well, he's not horrified. He, he, he tries to shut the major up, doesn't he? And he knows that's not an acceptable thing to say in the same way that sometimes Alan Partridge on Knowing Me, Knowing You, one of the guests will, will kind of say something that, do you remember the, the one with the older woman who had competed in the Berlin Olympics? And yeah. she, her anecdote diverges into really troubling racism and Alan Partridge is, is horrified. But still, I don't think there's that much rationale for that scene or for those words. I mean, there's a scene, there's a scene later in the episode where Basil Fawlty is perturbed by the fact that the doctor who comes to visit Sybil is a black man. And well, keeps... he's, he's not perturbed by the fact that he's black, is he? It's just, it's more that that doctor is characterised as this witch doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. He uses hypnosis and vaguely supernatural techniques on That's Basil. Where I was going with that is that one of the ways that was defended was, people, was I think, people saying, like, well, Basil is not a paragon of virtue, and the joke is that he's baffled by this doctor. But then there's the second issue that was less discussed, which is that he is presented as a kind of witch doctor, which is, that's problematic. The problematic nature of that goes beyond the characterization of Faulty, doesn't it? So... Yeah. For me, that would be the scene that I would want editing more than the scene where the major is quite clearly the butt of the joke. So the headline was UK TV Gold has taken down episodes of Faulty Towers. Again, it's a 24-hour news cycle. It transpired the next day, I think, or two days later, that they hadn't taken them down permanently. They'd taken them down to add contextual statements, I think. They were going to write some kind of written introduction to the episode or some kind of content warning that tried to contextualise the comedy as having come from a different time. But before that came to light, the headline comes out, Faulty Towers has been cancelled due to Black Lives Matter. And then that prompted all of these responses, you know, because it elided with the discussion of statues as well, didn't it? So as people saying, you can't just erase our history. Political correctness has gone mad. And then there was a spate of other things that were that were taken down. I mean, so Bo Selector got taken down, didn't it? And people were saying, oh... Because it was always shit. Well, I was going to say, yes, take it down because shit. And also, like, that was a very clear case. Or, like, I, there's no justification for their use of blackface. Like, it is, no. it's just horrible. Like, that, why was that ever okay? Is my, and I feel differently about that to Faulty Towers. And then yeah. Little Britain and stuff. Yeah, uh, the same as Little Britain, I was going to say, there was no need for the added extra joke when David Williams was uh, got up as a grotesque, overweight, semi-naked um, older woman at a health farm. There was no need for, for him to black up for that as well as everything else. It was literally just for one extra layer of cheap laughter and a kind of intake of breath from the audience. Like, I can't believe they've done that. I can't believe they've gone that far. There was no rationale for that. It was shit and wrong and terrible. Um, I don't have a problem with that having gone away. What do you think? What do you think about the Faulty Towers situation, Joe? Well, I'll tell you. Right. So I was just talking about David Williams and Bubbles Devere and whatever the name of his character was, and this ties into what I'm going to say about Faulty Towers. The thing about that sketch was it was already wildly misogynistic, right? It was what is more disgusting than a fat woman a fat old woman and what is most disgusting of all a fat old black woman 
And that sketch, the Bubbles Diverse sketch in the health farm, all its laughs hinged on the grotesque nature of an overweight elderly female body, right? But that that bit of it hasn't really attracted... We haven't gone back through and combed for misogyny. And the same applies with Faulty Towers, right? So I like to think, and I think I remember that even when I saw that episode as a quite young child, I thought it was weird and stupid and a bit wrong that the doctor was this weird kind of witch doctor character when basil is concussed and wakes up and sees the the nurse mm. do you remember what what his first words are no my god you're ugly right. and he's continually making um misogynistic jokes directed at or around or to the nurse who is also overweight and um an older woman the show is although sybil always wins out and sybil is the voice of reason and sybil is characterized as broadly a better person than basil as is polly always there to right the wrongs and sort out the messes there is wildly misogynistic language used to sybil and polly and their characterizations as being upset you know sybil can't get off the phone having her inane conversations with her inane female friends it is and it's not a competition and i realize that that's not the thing that's going on at the moment so those conversations are naturally enough not the ones that we're having but whilst we are finding those things i think it's really important to also note that most of the shows that are deeply dubious or dodgy to varying extents in terms of race are almost invariably deeply sexist as well mm. and faulty towers and little britain have issues to address there as well and i don't know when would be the right time to have those conversations or in what way those conversations should be staged but i just want to raise that whilst we are going through faulty towers and talking about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and what's dodgy and what should be retained and what shouldn't i think the idea that a overweight nurse is inherently a, a subject of hilarity and disgust perhaps we could also have a think about that as we go along so that's what i think about faulty towers okay karen what can me karen for because you're a woman who just made a very striking point so you're not a boomer are you i don't know is, is a boomer not anybody who's over about 25 i think broadly speaking probably not a boomer so you must be a karen because you're definitely a woman. Yeah, probably. I'll tell you what, we could talk about Karens another time, and I think there's a lot to say about it, and especially the rise of the Karen meme in the time of coronavirus. But I'll tell you what, when, uh, when you said that, I don't know what's behind it, but it makes me feel embarrassed to have spoken, definitely like I shouldn't speak anymore, and like I can't really defend anything that I've just said. So it's an interesting, um, interesting tool, isn't it? Hmm. What did John Cleese have to say about all of this? Well, so in the midst of this, the way that the nature of social media and the way these debates play out is that you suddenly had two quite extreme positions to choose from. One, which was this is political correctness gone mad and everything that anyone has ever said must be uh, allowed. Um, and if you disagree with that, you're a big woke snowflake. And then the other side of the argument, which was that if you have any qualms about the, like, the censoring of history, then you are a massive bigoted racist. So those were the... Um, two options. And in the midst of this shitstorm emerged a statement from John Cleese. And this was retweeted a lot. It was cited in articles covering what was happening at UK TV. There were clips of him saying this statement going around. And even I, as the satire Twitter account, quote tweeted this as, as if it was John Cleese's reaction to what was happening. I won't, I won't read it all out. Read some of it. I'll read some of it out. Yeah, because I think it's pertinent to what we're about to discuss with Sharon Lockyer back in January. Mm. 
Um, so he said, I'm offended every day. For example, British newspapers offend me every day with their laziness, their nastiness, and their inaccuracy. But I'm not going to expect someone to stop that happening. I'll just simply speak out about it. And you know, when, so when some people are offended, they just want someone to come in and say, right, stop that to whoever is offending them. And of course, and of course, as a former chairman of the BBC once said, there are some people one would wish to offend. And I think there's truth in that too. So the idea that you should be protected from any kind of uncomfortable emotion is one that I absolutely do not subscribe to. And a fellow that I helped write two books about psychology and psychiatry, who was a renowned psychiatrist, said something very interesting to me. He said, if people can't control their emotions, then they have to start controlling other people's behavior. And when you're around super sensitive people, you cannot relax and be spontaneous because you've got no idea what's going to upset them next. And that's why I've been warned recently, don't go to most university campuses because the political correctness has gone from, has gone from being a good thing, which is let's not be mean, particularly to people who are not able to look after themselves very well. That's, that's an interesting way to describe a minority group, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's yeah. a good idea. It's been taken from that to the point where any kind of criticism of any kind of group or individual can be labelled cruel. And the whole point about humour, the whole point about comedy, and believe you and me, I've thought about this, is that all comedy is critical. Even if you make a very inclusive joke like, how do you make God laugh? Answer, tell him your plans. Now that's about the human condition. It's not excluding anyone. It's saying we all have these plans that probably won't come, but isn't it funny that we still believe they're going to happen? So that's a very inclusive joke, but it's still critical. All humour is critical. If you start saying, oh, oh, we mustn't criticise or offend them, then humour's gone. With humour goes a sense of proportion. And then as far as I'm concerned, you're living in 1984. Right. Well, the first thing I would say is, that's a stupid example to, to illustrate the idea that all comedy is critical. Because saying, how do you make God laugh, tell him your plans, that it doesn't exclude people who do or don't believe in God or who believe in different gods or who believe in um, things that aren't gods. That is not, it is deeply disingenuous to say that that is the same as a joke that explicitly targets a particular group or seeks to to mock them or deride them that is making a point as he says and i think he knows it's a shit example because it's about the human condition it's about the fact that we our plans don't come to fruition it's not even really a joke is it it's more like a sort of aphorism or something and also i mean i don't think john cleese even does think that all comedy is critical who was who was the dead parrot sketch critical of who was the lumberjack sketch critical of it was and absurd and it, like some of it was funny mm. but I think this is really like post hoc constructed um, defence of comedy that might offend people so he's forced himself into a corner to have to say well all comedy offends people um, why did the chicken cross the road that's offensive to chickens ah. he says that he's thought about this a lot and I don't doubt that he does I mean obviously he's a he, he's done he's a what would you say like he's a monolithic figure in British comedy but I would disagree that all comedy is critical. I think what he's saying there about humour and comedy works in terms of satire. I think yeah. all satire is critical of something, isn't it? But as you say, and as Monty Python demonstrates, comedy can just be surreal. Comedy can just be... Yeah. I mean, there's nothing... There's not often a target for surrealist comedy, is there? Like, shooting no. stars wasn't really... I mean, oftentimes there was jokes at Ulrika's expense, but generally speaking, that Bob Mortimer-style 
comedy is is just bizarre it's funny because it doesn't make sense so so no i don't think that comedy has to be critical i think satire does i think the thing is john cleese hasn't been thinking about comedy in the abstract he hasn't been theorizing comedy he's been thinking about he started from the assumption that his comedy is fine and then he's had to try and think of why that is so and so he's had to construct this narrative in which all comedy is critical you cannot do comedy without offending people and if you try you are in George Orwell's 1984 and that's just not true. I mean, when he says the point, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, it's basically stream of consciousness, isn't it? And and, it's, and there's not that much internal consistency, but there's fragments. So when he says there are some people one might wish to offend, again, that's what satire does. Yeah. But then, I mean, when it comes down, when it comes down to these some of these questions about freedom of speech and political correctness, it's like, well, what is it that you want to do, John Cleese? Yeah. Like, I mean, on the one hand. Yes, I take the point that some, you know, when you're around super sensitive people, you can't be spontaneous because you might accidentally cause offence without meaning it. But he's not talking about accidentally causing offence, is he? He's talking about specifically offending people and being allowed to do it. Yeah, and there's just so much, there's so many more layers to it, aren't there? Because like you said, there's people made this sort of partial defence of that 40 Towers episode by saying, well, it's about Basil's response to that doctor and the, the jokers at his expense. But you have to also take into account that the doctor was scripted in the way that he was. Yeah. And I dread to think what the notes for that character said, um, you know, how he was described. So... It's disingenuous to pretend it's only about that. And that also leads me to the the other argument that people make a lot, and that I think he's, he might have made elsewhere, perhaps, that, well, it's from a different time, right? So back then, somebody like Basil would have responded like that. He would have been dubious and uncomfortable around uh, anybody who wasn't white. He would have said those things, and the major would have said those things. But, it, but again, that that's the thing that I quite often come back to, in all sorts of contexts. It's not true that everybody in the 70s was just really, really racist. It's not true that everybody in the olden times were all shared shared beliefs about slavery, about colonialism, about imperialism, about black doctors. It It's not true that all of this is just purely a modern invention and back in the day it was fine and normal and completely acceptable to be racist. I mean, you can see that in our the discomfort we were both just expressing with reference to Little Britain and Bo Selector. Yeah. We can see I want someone, a first year student might think, oh gosh, in the early noughties, they didn't know about yeah. Lives Matter. Yeah. But obviously we did and we felt sick of watching it then. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I also think, as you flagged when I was reading it, that it's very bizarre when he says, you know, the idea of political correctness is a good one when it means not making fun of people who aren't able to look after themselves. Like that, yeah. that is a very bizarre starting point for thinking about what political correctness is like he's basically saying disabled comedy is not politically correct but everything else is fair game isn't it well but it's more than that as well isn't it it's like he's saying everybody you might make a quote politically incorrect joke about somebody from an ethnicity other than your own or a woman or um somebody lgbt or or somebody disabled basically saying they're all kind of disabled Mm. they're all need to be you know we need to be extra kind and that's not really what it is is it no um so i think that's possibly slightly disingenuous or if it's not disingenuous it's extremely telling that's <laughs> where like where yeah well that's the thing isn't it he can't even try and give what he wants to be a neutral account of what political correctness is without being quite dodgy 
Yeah. So, yeah, so this statement emerged and it was positioned as a response to UK TV's decision to take down this episode of Faulty Towers. And everyone was quoting this. And like I said, even I fell into the mistake of quote treating it as if it was that. But it's actually from 2016. Uh, it's from a website called The Big Idea. And it had the headline, we can't have comedy and political correctness at the same time which I thought was pertinent given that we're about to talk to Sharon about satire and social justice. That interview was roughly adjacent to the BBC's decision to censor Faulty Towers back in 2016. So mm. when they were re-releasing it and putting it on iPhone and stuff, they chose to edit through the major scene. The scene with the witch doctor is undisturbed, but the scene where the major is using offensive, hateful language is edited. And John Cleese said he agreed with that. And then this, this interview emerged. So... Yeah, so it's not actually, this statement is not actually in any way a response to UK TV, TV in 2020. Um, and as I've already mentioned, they only took them down for 24 hours so that they could add contextual information, then put them back up again. So the whole thing was over nothing anyway. And actually, I thought the solution of adding contextual information is the way to manage this sort of stuff. Mm. deal with it in concert but um so so a lot of what we're going to talk to Sharon about now there's all kinds of extra layers in context just because of things that have happened since aren't there but uh, so it, it makes for interesting listening in the context of this and perhaps other things that listeners might be um might be put in mind of in terms of comedy offense erasing history political correctness jokes political comedy so shall we have some further ado or should we without further ado without further ado come with us listeners on a journey back to January 2020. It's time for our long-awaited and highly anticipated interview with Dr. Sharon Lockyer, who has written and co-written academic publications on comedy and disability, comedy and gender and sexuality, on the importance and impact of comedy on identity and comedy, terrorism and comedy, on the targets of comedy, on rape jokes and comedy, and as that last example makes particularly clear, on the limits of comedy. And a book that Sharon co-edited in 2005 called Beyond a Joke, The Limits of Humour is a textbook we've both been reaching for quite often in recent months, isn't it? Dr Sharon Lockyer, hello. Could you tell us and our listeners, please, a little bit about your prevailing interest in comedies and also particularly your interest in comedy as a sociologist? As a sociologist, my primary interest in comedy has always been the role and function and position of comedy in society generally, but more specifically, how comedy is used to represent or construct or also reconstruct ideas and representations around different identities, whether that's individual, whether that's groups or at societal level. What I'm really interested in is how comedy, such as stand-up comedy, for example, in the live arena, can be used to challenge dominant ideologies and dominant stereotypes around certain groups or certain belief systems and ideologies. And also in media discourses more generally, so I've looked at TV sitcom, TV sketch shows and film comedy, but the really the, sort of the, the overarching interest in all of the research I've done is looking at but the social role and impact of comedy. Well, you're the ideal person for us to be talking to, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, just before we get into that as well, you're also the director for the Centre for Comedy Studies at Brunel. Could you tell us a little bit about what the Centre for Comedy Studies is? Yes, yeah, so um, the Centre for Comedy Studies Research is the first and only international interdisciplinary 
research centre that focuses on the um, academic study of comedy. So it's based or hosted by the Department of Social and Political Sciences based at Brunel University in London. It's really an interdisciplinary research centre that focuses on understanding the role of comedy in a variety of different settings, whether that's in relation to politics, business, media, law, social work and health environment. And it includes researchers, academics and students, but also those people working in the comedy industry who have a genuine interest in understanding the social role and impact of comedy. So our sort of academics work alongside uh, comedians or comedy festival directors or might be charities that are interested in using comedy as a way of maybe enhancing certain groups communication skills or their self-esteem or I'm just sharing their stories really. So it's really set up to sort of help recognise comedy studies as a as an area worthy of academic study, but also to make that bridge between the academic study of comedy and um, those people who are practising comedy and linking those two groups together in a way that the research and uh, the work that we do can inf help inform those people performing comedy and the opposite way around as well. So these people or groups um, working in the comedy industry can sort of benefit from our research. And, you know, it's been really successful. I think I possibly didn't anticipate how much interest it would generate, actually, not just here in the UK, but, you know, across the globe in terms of there's a real appetite to understand and unpack how comedy is working in contemporary society. Well, that, that sounds like um, an excellent model for us with our <laughs> unit for the research of satire. <laughs> What do you think is the relationship between satire and comedy and humour? Does satire come up in, in, in what you're doing? I think that's a really interesting question and I think it's a really, the, the relationships I think are quite complex and aren't necessarily straightforward. So in terms of satire, I know we've had lots of discussions obviously about that on your podcast. In terms of, you know, it has a particular function, a particular role, that's widely evident in the literature in terms of you know, highlighting corruption, dishonesty, tension, and sort of crit critiquing that and holding it up to ridicule and to mockery, whether the target is a politician or a public figure or a corporation, whatever it might be, and high, you know, suggesting that you know, there, there's a better way of behaving or better way of being in relation to um, behavioural thoughts and ideologies. And I know some people sort of make it or have argued, make a distinction between satire and comedy. You know, the satire is, you know, wanting a you know, better uh, position in society or society to be in a bit of better place. But I think comedy can do that as well. I think comedy can be uh, angry and confrontational, which sometimes is the sort of the ingredient of satire. I think you can still get have that in comedy. And I think you know, there is an element of comedy not necessarily making it explicit that there's a better way of being in terms of society, but I think um, some comedians, particularly the work I've been doing around comedians with uh, impairments who self-identify as a, you know, disabled comedians, they, the work I've done has highlighted that some of those comedians have argued that they want to shift the perception of disability and I think that is a, that is a change that's a social change which I think comedy can have or, or at least facilitate and then 
you, you asked about humour as well, didn't you? <laughs> the comedy that I work on is very much performative, so it's performed with a particular intention to be entertaining and funny first and foremost. And then there are sort of other functions that sort of sit alongside that. I suppose with humour, something can be humorous whether it's intended to be humorous or not. And I think for me, that's the distinction that I make between comedy as a, as a performance, as a having a particular intention and motive to be amusing, to be humorous or entertaining. Whereas humor, you can be humorous without necessarily intending to be, or even necessarily acknowledging that you've been humorous. Uh, a little while ago, I was reading the introduction to the book you co-edited, Beyond the Joke, The Limits of Humour, mm-hmm. from 2005. And there's a bit in there, I think very early on, the distinction is made between comedy and humour. And it, it says, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in the genre of comedy for humour to, to exist or work. You don't even have to, you know, it can happen in domestic situations. It can happen at home. It can happen at work. It can happen in tragedy. And, and I, I thought that was really useful. So a conversation that Joe and I end up having quite a lot is how satire and comedy don't have to go together mm. you, can have, you can have satire that yeah. isn't comedy Absolutely. and yeah i just thought there's that there's a further distinction that you can drill down to in that within comedy itself isn't there satire doesn't have to be amusing I, that's an important point to make as well because obviously satire is often associated with comedy and humor but it doesn't necessarily have to have that comic element or that humorous element and in that book as well that book starts by talking about how a joke can ruin everything, offering the, the case study of Berlusconi to basically start in his position office with a, with a Holocaust joke where he likened a German MEP to an SS guard. And then the introduction talks about the ways in which that could be read as an irreversible, irreparable gaffe. And that sort of, you know, you can't take that back. And we were just wondering, rereading that introduction and preparing for this interview, what you think about the current situation. So do you think there are parallels between that and the kinds of gaffe or supposed moments of satire we see from the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson? And yeah, I think that's really interesting ideas or a really interesting question. And sort of our immediate response would be that you know, Boris Johnson has cultivated over, over years a buffoon-like character. And, you know, that has taken, you think, from, from Have I Got News For You through to, you know, more contemporary examples. That's what he's taking ownership of that. And he's cultivated that buffoon-like character for, for his own benefit, I think, in terms of taking ownership, but also directing, whether it's journalists or satirists, to convey him in a comic way or potentially comic way. When he argues himself that he's like an incredible Hulk-like figure, that's almost given license to satirists or, or comedians to obviously highlight that but exaggerate that and use that for for satirical gain or or comic material and I think he's very well versed at managing those uh, comic representations or the comic tropes that comedians use. Boris Johnson is probably be more aware of um, how comedy can work and how boundaries around what's appropriate and inappropriate shift over space and over time. And I think he, he, he sort of plays with that as well. And I think context is really important because with the, with the joke that you've mentioned about Berlusconi, that was when he, he made that joke in European Parliament when he began, began his term as president. And I think you know, the context you know, of him being in that position and being in the context of European Parliament and wishing, to, well, ideally bringing different countries together ideals together, 
Um, but then making a joke that was really, really divisive and really problematic and made many people in, in that context really uncomfortable. And that context probably lent itself to people feeling much more offended because the context in terms of giving him permission to joke wasn't necessarily there. And obviously it's a horrific topic that he's... Is it legitimate to take offence at, at bits of comic discourse? Are there, are there points where that's counterproductive? Are there, are there things where, times where you think it's appropriate or inappropriate or problematic when people take offence based on what's deemed appropriate or inappropriate? It's more than acceptable and required if a joke is, or attempt at a joke or a funny story is inciting racial or religious hatred or is based on sort of hate speech or racism or xenophobia or essentially um, bullying. So I think though the Jokes that are made around those topics, I think, um, warrant people to, to stand up and highlight the problematic nature of that. So I think those types of jokes probably sit outside of what I'm about to say in terms of some of the risks involved in terms of highlighting that a joke made, made you feel uncomfortable or problematic. In a sense that the work that I've done is looked at, or part of the work that I've done is looked at sort of the boundaries and the ethics of, of joking. And what we've highlighted in the research is um, the tensions that surround the act of highlighting you've been offended by a joke. So in British society and Western society more generally, there's a value attached to having a sense of humour. So we, we seek to um, demonstrate that we have a sense of humour in ourselves and, we, and when we're looking for friends or partners, we want somebody who has quite a good sense of humour. So I think when, when we challenge a comedian or attempt to challenge a comedian around a, a particularly you know, a comfortable joke, the sort of the charge or the criticism that can come back to, uh, to you is that, you know, well, you don't understand the joke, you don't have a sense of humour. I suppose not understanding the joke is one thing, but also being charged with lacking a sense of humour sort of shifts the responsibility of that problematic joke or story onto you as an audience member, as a member that's highlighted it as problematic. So you become almost like the deficient person in that, in that relationship. And also, I think it was Goffman that argued that the just a joke response that is often played out in these examples, I think he refers to it as like the most widely used dodge in the history of man, something like that. So again, that's a rhetorical move to shift the responsibility from the comedian who's made what the audience or member of the audience perceive as a problematic joke from the comedian onto the onto the individual in terms of that individual can't necessarily or doesn't have the qualities or isn't equipped to be able to identify that um, a joke has been joke has been made. But having said said that, I think there are many instances in British examples actually where a piece of comedy has been um, shared. I'm thinking here of the work that I've done on Brassai, a one-off special Peter Geddon. Right. from 2001 that that Chris Morris wrote in his intention was to highlight the hysteria that had been created by the ways in which the media had represented and constructed um, paedophilia and, and those topics and 
that was aired on Channel 4 and there was lots of controversy around that um, programme. But what we found when I worked on the project with Fiona Atwood was that the media coverage of that offence and of that outrage included many people who hadn't seen the original documentary or mockumentary. So they had sort of jumped on the offended bandwagon, if you like, if you like in terms of identifying or hearing the word or the, you know, the idea that, you know, paedophilia or paedophiles and a, um, and a piece of comedy and just and then assuming that that was going to be, that's offensive and that's, that shouldn't be done. Whereas the intention and the motive from Chris Morris's view was to really highlight the problematic nature of the media and the media representations of that topic. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot at stake, isn't there, in saying, I find that joke problematic or I take offence at that joke. Because as you say, then you immediately open yourself up to accusations of not having a sense of humour or not being able to understand that it's just a joke. And in that instance, they're kind of merited, aren't they? Because people had got wind of the idea that the word paedophilia was being used in some proximity to some amount of laughter and then not really understood what the relationship was between those things. Absolutely, yeah. I think that... That was the really uh, important observation in that whole example was the, the disjuncture between what the programme was attempting to achieve and how audiences, some members of the audiences, made quite, quite a quick judgment on that. You know, within the context as well, there was, you know, that's a topic that yeah, um, is very difficult in terms of, I'm thinking about paedophilia here, um, and at the time, you know, there was lots of anxieties in British society about how, well, how do we deal with this as, in terms of society. But as you say, you know, Peter Geddon, as a mock documentary, was attempting to do something very different. Mm. I think that's always going to be a risk with comedies that draw on the sort of documentary form and style and the genre of documentary, but, but then put it in a sort of uh, comic frame. You know, some members of the audience might pick up on that, where others might not be able to read the nuances. Although you know, with Peter Geddon, there's many instances where maybe if you are, I don't know, if, you, if you're familiar with Versailles style and Chris Morris's style, then the sort of the comic element and the satirical, like serious message might be much clearer than, than other members of the audience. And I think that was the problem as well, because I mean, with comedy or satire, there's an element of ambiguity in some instances, interpretive diversity. You might interpret the same joke in a very different way. And for me, that's what makes it really interesting because of you know, the complexity of how it works as a, as a form of expression. I'm still I'm thinking about this off the top of my head, so it might not make much sense. But I was thinking about how that works in, with social media and stuff. So I, when I was rereading your chapter, you, there's a bit where you talk about how when a comic is performing live, they're constantly operating a knife, a knife edge between like, politely engaging the audience and like shocking them. And then when you decide to laugh in a comedy club, mm. it's not, you're not sat there, you don't sit there and think about why you're going to laugh. Do you, you laugh or you don't laugh? Whereas mm. when a person says something on Twitter and then you look at the comments underneath and a lot of them are either saying lol, which I always think is strange. So you've had to, yeah. you know, think about it, sit and then type out that you're laughing out loud, uh, which mm. becomes an endorsement or that's not funny I'm, or I'm offended by this or mm. this doesn't work as comedy, but none of it, it the whole thing looks as though, or it, it's performing or imitating a kind of the spontaneous response you might get in a comedy club. 
but because we talk about social media speeding things up, but in that case, it's slowing it down and you're, yeah. you're actually performing the process that we, that we associate with comedy and, and then it all takes on a different signification. I just thought of that. I don't know if anyone has anything to say about so it. So on, on Twitter, people can, the, the work behind the joke is more visible and more open to analysis, whereas when you're just in a club, you either laugh or you don't. And also as the audience member, there's a degree of you're performing. Yeah. Ha ha, I laughed at that. Or yeah. no, I didn't. Yeah. Which maybe takes on more signification when it's all a written utterance, not a not the instantaneous response you have to comedy as it's happening live in real yeah. life. But it's not effective anymore, mm. is it, when it's mm. on Twitter? What do you think of that, Sharon? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's there's some really interesting things there because I know, I think you might have discussed it before about the importance of shared laughter. And, you know, Henry Bergson argues, you know, that, that laughter, you know, is a social act and it, bring, it can sort of bring people together. So you're reducing sort of social distance when you're, when you're sharing a laughter, you're signalling that you've, you've recognised an attempt at joking has been made and you are sort of appreciated. And also, you know, you, you've given it a joke status that you're um, happy to endorse. And you build up that sense of community so with stand-up, it's very much about that sharing of experience and building up, up a community, which in a shared physical space, as you say, it's much more immediate and um, you can probably be much more responsive. I suppose, but even within sort of online spaces, there's a shared, you know, there's a certain extent there's a shared community. But let's say, you know, you've got time to probably process a joke more than you would in a live live setting because the moment's then gone and the you know the comedian will be making another joke probably. Whereas on Twitter, by the time you see the joke, there might already be a comment underneath it explaining why you shouldn't laugh at it and it isn't funny. Mm. Yeah, with for the live performance, you've got the non-verbal lang you know language that you know the comedian might be saying the joke but might be using his or her or their body in a slightly different way to suggest mm. that. Being ironic, or they might be, you know, just testing the audience to see, you know, what sort of um, audience they have in um, that particular gig at that particular night. Um, but then, when you sort of take that out of that physical space and, and put it online, then you lose all of those other really important uh, ways of communicating in comedy when you just strip it down to the words rather than how it's said maybe what what jokes have been said before, how has the comedian joked about the particular topic that might have enabled the comedian the audience to appreciate where the comedian's coming from. So a joke that might on the surface be really uh, make you feel really uncomfortable and problematic when you see it just as the words on Twitter. If you've been in the, in the comedy club and the comedian has been building up to this joke for say 30, min you know, 30 minutes and taking the audience with, with him or her or them, the response might be quite different. It's the words just laid out on, um, on a computer or on social media. Mm. I guess that's why Stuart Lee's not on Twitter, isn't yeah. it? So think about jokes that are online and fence and so on. Um, I just I want to come around now to to connect this interview with one that we did earlier in the series where we talked to Andrew Doyle, who's the creator of Titania McGrath, and that Twitter account exists to parody woke culture um, and to flag what might be perceived as hypocrisies and contradictions and dangers of, of that particular 
community and the way they think about identity politics and social justice. What's your take on all of that? How do you, what do you think about social justice as a, a target for satire or social justice in the way that it's conceived of by those people as a target for satire? Yeah, I, mean, I did listen to a podcast with Andrew Doyle, and I think you know there's really interesting discussions that take place in that podcast, and there's lot you know lot lots of content. And the way I understood it, that Andrew Doyle is they're highlighting the sort of pretension and critiquing the pretension with the woke, woke cultural movement, and. Yeah, I think he was arguing that you know, as a as a movement, you know, they have a lot of power, and but he, I think he was arguing that you know they they, they have a quite a privileged background, but then they're saying they're oppressed. So I yeah. think he was arguing that that was why they're deemed a target in his eyes as a, an appropriate target for satire. I suppose that I'm I maybe slight reservations about that in terms of women and and men and equality in terms of we're a long way 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 off having equality between men and women and in terms of the intersectionality intersectionality of of oppression so it's not just about sexual gender it's race and ethnicity whether you you have a disability or not so i think those um, tensions make it quite difficult in terms of stripping one dimension or aspect of identity as a target of, of um, satire or ridicule when our identity is really complex and tied up with lots of other areas which which makes which would make it really unfair and inappropriate to make jokes at that at the expense of um, one particular group. It's like the caricature of a woke person isn't singular or monolithic enough or straightforwardly privileged enough to be a legitimate target for satire, perhaps. Yes, that, that's what I was trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad, glad I got it. I think that echoes a lot of the the reservations that that we that we expressed at the time mm. that but then i also have to hold my hands up and say i do find that actually quite um on point there's a proportion of it where you're like yeah yeah well I get, <laughs> if you remove the the monolithic identity of a woke person then there then there are specific instances that yeah. are worthy of critique and yeah. parody aren't they? but then on the whole you risk so harming genuinely vulnerable groups yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And this has prompted us to have conversations generally about mm. social justice and the relationship between comedy and social justice. Well, I found a, a quote from you in 2016 where you said, and you've already alluded to this in, in this interview today, the political potential of comedy clearly suggests that comedy is worth taking seriously. And, and as you said, today there are practical uses for comedy and humour. But we were just wondering, do you foresee any social uses for comedy and humour in particularly within the context of social justice, like can comedy and humour become a tool for social justice? Do you think? Yeah, I think I think it definitely has a potential to to do that. Or in in terms of some of the uh, the work that I've done around disability, that's very much about sort of highlighting inequalities and using comedy as a tool as a technique for social justice. So I think there's uh, it can definitely be used. I think you know we, we've we've spoken about some of the tensions that exist around using comedy to maybe have a serious message. So I think, although yes, it can be used, because I think it can be a tool to raise 
topics that might cause anxiety or, or cause tension. I think some of the work or the comedians that I've spoken to around disability would argue there's still lots of tension felt in the room in the live stand-up when a comedian particularly has a, a physical disability. There's quite a lot of barriers that some comedians face in terms of breaking that tension down. And also in terms of even physical access to, to a comedy club. And so comedians I've spoken to, for example, Liz Carr or Lost Voice Guy, uh, Sean Turner and Lawrence Clark, who, ha who have um, performed in spaces where they've had difficulty getting down the stairs to a, to a cellar if they're performing in the club or having to be physically lifted on and off stage if they're a wheelchair user. And so although, yes, on, on one hand, I think it can be a tool, I think in terms of um, lots of other barriers that certain groups face, um, it, it limits the usage or, or the potential positive impact of the, the comedy in terms of the content can have because of the, the physicality of the comedy um, industry in terms of spaces but also how the industry is structured as well, that that might be for another discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose, again, there's a parallel here in that we're in the relatively early stages of finding out what the challenges are of working on satire. What are the challenges of working on comedy? When I was doing my PhD, which was back in the 1990, late 1990s, and my PhD was looking at uh, Private Eye magazine, and looking at some of the sort of libel cases and offensive jokes that Private Eye um, had written or published. And I would often, in those settings where you're in an academic setting or environment and somebody asks, oh, what's your research on? I would explain what my research was looking at. The responses I would receive sort of range from, oh, tell us a good joke then. Mm. Um, through to you've got funding to do that mm. which are tied up with this view or this perception that because you're looking at uh, or researching satire or comedy by its very nature is uh, it might be in some people's eyes quite frivolous but it doesn't warrant academic attention so I spent a number of my number of years both during my PhD and since actually justifying my research interest in comedy but I would say, I think that has declined in the last maybe, I'd say, maybe five to ten years. Um, you know, sometimes that those comments um, are highlighted or, or expressed. But I'd say they're less prevalent than they were when I first was doing my PhD in the 1990s. The other response I used to get on a regular basis and have received in other other environments that aren't academic is the reference to the American writer E.B. White's ideas around analysing comedy. Um, it's, it goes along the lines of analysing humour is like dissecting the frog. Few people are interested and the frog dies of it. So suggesting that, you know, if you're if you're analysing a comedy, you know, comedy or, or a joke, then essentially you're, you know, eradicating any sort of pleasure or amusement from it. I've received that comment quite a lot. And I think those 
sort of res those responses are quite redundant in many ways because I like to argue that you know unpacking how comedy works both as a uh, as a performance but also as a tool for sort of ideological implications or challenges to ideology that that's really important and I think and and Dean Medhurst, a scholar who's written about British identities, he, he's sort of argued that, you know, you don't lose the comedy um, analysing it, you only lose the comedy if the comedy is not great to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> it is quite a nice response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, sometimes, sometimes frogs need dissecting, don't they? Exactly. Yeah, I don't. I don't see that as necessarily a problem. Because <laughs> I do think those perceptions have become less frequent, like I say, mm. maybe like, yeah, between the last five and ten years. And I think there is a recognition that comedy has a really central role to play in society. And I think that given that some of the controversies more recently around comedy have been like global comedy controversies, so mm. I think cartoon controversies, you know, Charlie, Charlie Hebdo, you know, Borat film, Sasha Baron Cohen, these tensions and discussions about what's appropriate and inappropriate in terms of comedy have gone global. Mm. Um, so I think that's, that's been an interesting um, shift of perception around you know, comedy not just being seen as this frivolous piece of entertainment that we shouldn't spend any money analysing. Um, to recognising that it really has a significant role to play in society. In terms of my own research as an academic, it's on 18th century periodicals and magazines and newspapers, uh, political ones, political sponsored ones. Mm -hmm. And satire has always been there. They've, they've always been doing satire and I've always been writing about it. But it's only the last couple of years where, through working with Joe and through this project, I've realised that actually it's so much there, it's worth foregrounding. And since I have done that, it's gained a lot more traction. So, which is the opposite of what I would have thought when I started. You know, if, if I start framing this as satire and comedy, yeah. people are going to think I'm wasting my time or wasting funding or whatever. But actually, it's been the opposite. It's, um, everyone's been much more receptive to it since, since I shifted the focus. So I don't know if something has changed. As you know, there's you know, the Comedy Studies Journal. I co-edit the Palgrave Studies in Comedy book series with a colleague of mine, Roger Sabin. Definitely a shift in terms of or acknowledging that this is a, a, an area that really requires further study. So We all agree then. Comedy and satire are eminently worthy of and in need of academic inquiry and analysis, analysis and so on. Well, I, I, I'm really encouraged by what you're doing and I think it's fantastic that you've got the podcast as well because I think there's, I think there's lots of scope in terms of the research that we do of engaging lots of different people in the research that we do and there's lots of people outside of academia who are really interested in the work that we do and I think the podcast is a really good way of getting our ideas out to to other people who wouldn't necessarily have access to our books or our journal articles for example so i think it's fantastic oh thank, thank you, you very much thank you Thanks. okay well, yeah <laughs> thank you very much for that was uh, that was fascinating wasn't it what a fantastic person to speak to and what a role model for us starting out in the field of the studies of satire to sort of see well it sounds um 
it sounds unnecessarily antagonistic, but to say like how many battles she's already won, like how much ground she's already yeah. covered and how, and everything that their centre is already doing is really it's something to have hope from in these difficult times, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I thought we could just round off after that interview with a quick, relatively contemporary uh, it's a week ago at the time of recording, it'd be a bit longer ago by the time people hear it, with a, a contemporary example of where that's happened. Is that all right with you? Absolutely, yeah, please do. Cool. So, yeah, we've we've just been talking about whether Boris Johnson um, is a buffoon or a satirist. Um, how, has, how has that been playing out in this context? It's interesting that even still, the, the lockdown version of Dead Ringers, the way that they do... Boris Johnson is that he'll be talking in what he's attempting a kind of statesmanlike manner and then he'll be taken over by bad Boris who just kind of erupts and starts going wah 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 and so there's still clearly a perception that Boris is as Johnson is a sort of split personality between these characters. Did you follow PMQs last week? Um, I've read about it I didn't actually see it. Yeah. Okay, so there was a row after Keir Starmer brought up the subject of the bereaved families of coronavirus victims and asked, I think he, he suggested that, that, that there should be some sort of message to these families. And also this was in the context of official warnings about a winter resurgence of the virus. And Boris Johnson, who it seems to me is increasingly rattled by and unable to cope with Keir Starmer's interventions at PMQs, didn't really respond to the point about the message or the winter resurgence and said, one day he says it's safe to go back to schools, he being Keir Starmer. The next day he's taking the line of the unions. One day they're supporting our economic programme. The next day they're saying our stamp duty cut is an unacceptable bum. One day they say they accept the result of the Brexit referendum. The next day, today, they'll tell their troops to do the exact opposite. He, Keir Starmer, needs to make up his mind about which brief he's going to take today because at the moment he's got more briefs than Calvin Klein. So Keir Starmer and many others considered this to be an unwarranted flippancy in the face of an extremely serious question in a serious context. Boris Johnson's obviously been kind of fed this line. I should say as well that one of the things that Boris Johnson, one of the few kind of consistent things in his responses to Keir Starmer is like, You're, why don't you just support us? You keep flip-flopping around. You, you should just unquestioningly, uncritically, unswervingly support everything we do, but you keep changing your mind on things. So he said... You've got, he's got more briefs than Calvin Klein. And this didn't go particularly well. Both the fact that he made a joke, the fact that he made a joke in response to this particular question, and also presumably the thing, the reason the joke was meant to be funny is because it mentions pants, but this seemed like a particularly like low quality kind of joke and, and topic to come back with. So let's analyse that joke like well, that a frog. Like that's ready mate, that's oven ready for uh, Michael Spicer's man next door routine, isn't it? You can imagine the question before him saying, right, if you need it, you've got the briefs joke. And then he gets a question about yeah. the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. victims. And he and then Boris goes for the briefs joke. And you can imagine Michael Spicer like, not now, not for this one. And yeah. also Calvin Klein, um, let, let's dig down. Calvin Klein isn't a man with a big drawer full of lots of different pants, is it? No. Calvin Klein is a company that makes mm. pants. So it doesn't particularly work, does it? Oh, I don't know if Bob Johnson is, is not, not necessarily in touch with a common man, but he's, he's, he has correctly identified a brand of underpants. Yeah. But that's not what a brand of underpants does, is it? They don't just have all the pants. No. What he should have said is, it seems like he's got more briefs than Mr. Bean. 
because that would have been funny because Mr Bean was famous for having his big underpants, wasn't he? Yeah. And then it would have suggested that Keir Starmer was in some way similar to Mr Bean and then you would have had Boris the Buffoon and Keir Starmer and Mr Bean. It's not good. Like, it's not clever comedy. I feel like that, that might not have gone over any better, to be fair. Might have. No, also, no. Mr Bean, quite old now, isn't not it? Got, it not got the cultural currency of Calvin Klein for all the You know what, also, I, I mean, you might be able to tell me differently. I don't think that most people refer to underpants as briefs. Nobody does. No. So the pun on taking a brief as the leader of the opposition and having a lot of briefs in the manner that Boris Johnson imagines his version of Calvin Klein to do, even that doesn't particularly work because people don't really say... No, they do, in the, UC, they do in the UCU, don't they? They have the USS briefs and it's a picture of underpants. Yeah, but they don't mean pants. But the, the Twitter icon is a picture of pants. Oh, okay, yeah. But no, it's not it probably, I imagine it's the sort of thing that it probably says on the packet, but people don't say, I must remember my briefs. I'll tell you what it would say, where it would say, where the only place where this pun would occur in a natural habitat would be in like Wilkinson's or Poundland, where all the products have those rubbish taglines. So like yeah. on pants in Poundland or Wilco's, it would say, don't forget your daily briefs. Yeah, yeah. Or say if um, if Keir Starmer stood up to make a speech in the House of Commons and um, his trousers fell down and you could see his pants, mm -hmm. then if Boris Johnson said, could you just keep it brief, please? Yeah. That would work. I don't think anybody but, wants to see today's daily brief or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's bad, isn't it? And it's at the same time, this is like a double disc for Boris Johnson. It doesn't work as a joke. He doesn't understand what an underpant making company is. He doesn't understand who Calvin Klein is. He's placing too much reliance on the fact that a brief Keir Starmer receives is commonly also the word used for underpants. And perhaps most importantly of all, it's really offensive. And he didn't even answer the fucking question. No, it's a pre-prepared line and he's used it at the worst possible moment. Get out of jail card. And he Not even it. a good buffoon, is he? Not even a good buffoon, no. Um, how did Keir Starmer respond? In the moment. Do you know what? I'm not sure. I think I'll base this on footage I've seen of Keir Starmer at PMQs. Usually, I think he probably would have sat back in his chair, rolled his eyes and shook his head a bit and just looked like the kind of dictionary illustration of disparagement. This, what Boris has done, what Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has done there is one of his stock moves, isn't it? Which is, are you okay? I was just doing an impression of Keir Starmer. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> what he's done there is, um, is, he does that a lot. So Keir, asks, Keir Starmer asks a difficult question, then Boris Johnson lists all the things the opposition has allegedly you turned on. But he did it once, didn't he? And Keir Starmer turned around and he said to the, the Speaker, so he turned around and he said to the Speaker, um, Your Honour, I rather thought that this was Prime Minister's question time, not the opposition's question time, which I thought was a good point. Like, that's not Boris Johnson isn't there to ask questions about the opposition's position. He's there to answer the questions that they ask him. Although yeah. I was a bit disappointed when Keir Starmer played into the whole press-ups gag. Yeah. But, I mean, that started with him saying, are you fit? Basically, are you fit and well enough to be Prime Minister? I rather think you should drop and give us 20 if you are. Which, of course, yeah. led to Boris Johnson posing, doing press-up. It's just a gift for Boris Johnson, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And also, it's stupid, isn't it? Because I, I can only probably do two press-ups without having to drop to knees, but I still think I'd be a better fucking Prime Minister than Boris Johnson. So it's no kind of measure, is it? It's not, no. And particularly when there are thousands of people dying every week. Yeah. So stop mucking around. That is not the time for yeah. a joke. So, uh, about, about time we wrapped it up, isn't it? 
I think it is, yeah. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Hope, hope you enjoyed our interview with Sharon Lockyer. If you did and you want to let us know, there's lots of ways Donate to... Donate to our Patreon. Yeah, you can visit our imaginary Patreon. You could, if you, if anything we said today has provoked you to have new thoughts, you could share them with us in an email by emailing us at satirenomore at gmail.com. Share us your ideas. Share, share your ideas with us at satirenomore at gmail.com. You can send us a, hit us up on Twitter at satirenomore or you can visit us on Instagram at talk about satire yeah so please please do feel free to do any of those things um yeah it should be clear we haven't got a patreon yeah what, what are we doing next time well next time well i was just going to say we've actually got an embarrassment of riches for you this summer because uh if you haven't seen it already there is also a bonus episode in circulation which is a mailbag episode where joe and i have gone through many responses that we've that we've received to the podcast on social media and, and some on email some we and some we haven't so that's a bumper bonus summer episode there's this episode and then coming up next month, we've got a very special interview with the author Lee Stein, who has just written a novel called Self Care, which is a um, satirical novel. I think so. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to you um, to talking to her. If you haven't read the book already, you should buy it and read it quick. Like it's not a long book, but it is an enjoyable read, isn't it? It's well, yeah, it's not long, but it's economical, isn't it, in terms of how much is going on in there? Absolutely. Um, and it's a satire on social media. It's a satire on liberal feminism. It's a satire on. The whole wellness in industry, isn't it? And pampering. Yeah, there's loads to unpick and unpack. Join us again for our discussion with Lee Stein. Well, we'll be doing exactly that. We'll unpick and unpack, won't we? We will. But for now. For now. Sit up. Shut up. And eat my satire. Stay satirical. Goodbye, listeners. Bye.